We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela, Dei Mater Alma, Ad Semper Virgo, Felix Well, I haven't finished saying everything I'd like to say about Desert Fathers and Vices and Virtues and Logismoi and the Cure. So I've uh, begged for a third screening, and this is acceptable. I wasn't happy with the microphone uh, performance here. At uh, the office on campus, I had uh, brick walls, uh, carpeting, and the uh, walls were covered with uh, bookshelves. I had to uh, get rid of about half my library in order to fit it into this home office. And it uh, created in my ear a, a real uh, teeny uh, talking in a bucket or a well sound. So I've invested in a uh, jazzy microphone. Um, I'm hoping to resist the um, temptation to pick it up and mimic uh, Frank Sinatra for you. Uh, I think that I'll be successful in that in case you're worried about going anywhere forward. What were those monks uh, doing in the desert? That's our question. It's not only our question, but one that uh, Cassian asked. Evagris's own pupil was named John Cassian, and he carried the institutes of uh, Egyptian monasticism back to the West and there it influenced the ascetical tradition. I showed you Callisto's Ware's quote and how the um, eight became the seven. Back in Rome, Cassian uh, accepted the invitation to found an Egyptian-style monastery in southern Gaul near Marseille. He arrived in Marseille around 415 and the Abbey of St. Victor was a complex of monasteries for both men and women, one of the first such institutes in the West. Those um, types of monasteries influenced Benedict of Nursia, which is the basis then for Benedictine Cistercian and Trappist monks, and still exercises influence. Love that pause button. A, a thought came to mind. Uh, influence rule of Benedict. Well, here's a, a copy of his rule and the chapters. And if you go to the final chapter, now we've written this rule that by its observance and in monasteries we may show that we have attained some degree of virtue in the rudiments of the religious life, but for those who would hasten to the perfection of that life, there are the teachings of the Holy Fathers. What book of the Holy Catholic Fathers does not loudly proclaim how we may come by straight course to our Creator? Uh, start first with uh, scripture, then the conferences and the institutes and the rules of the and the lives of the fathers and the rule of our Holy Father Basil. Uh, Benedict calls his rule just the alphabet. You're learning your ABCs. Now, you want to go further? 
beyond this uh, minimum rule, which we've written just for beginners, then uh, start with scripture, go to the uh, fathers, conferences and the institutes and the lives of the fathers. That's what John Cassian has written. He was asked uh, two questions when he returned from Egypt, what do they do? And he wrote the institutes describing the uh, life in the desert. Here are the chapter titles of the institutes. And then he was asked, uh, and what did they say? What did you talk about while you were in the desert? And he has a series of conferences. This isn't all of them, uh, but it's how the titles go. John Cassian translates the word aptheia from Evagrius into puritus cordis, purity of heart, because uh, thinks, he thinks it will be uh, more acceptable to the uh, Western readers. Uh, why they might think that apatheia means apathy or some such thing uh, if they hadn't been told better. Apatheia, purity of heart, is a fear of the Lord, a deep calm arising from integration under the influence of love. Now there's one conference that um, Cassian has that I'd like to uh, pick as our starting point here, and it's with Abba Moses. He goes and asks for a word. That's how the um, phrasing goes. Tell me a word, and here's a bit of wisdom that they have. And Abba Moses replies that every human being is engaged in a task. Everyone has some target, uh, an arrow shooting some direction towards an end or a goal. And he asks John Cassian in return, give me a word. And he asks him, what's the goal of a monk? And Cassian answers simplistically, it's to attain the kingdom of heaven. And Abba Mo Moses is prompted to distinguish two kinds of ends or goals, Scopus and Telos short-term goal, long-term goal. And here's a, a quick overview of what we'll look at below. Short-term goal of a farmer is to clear his field of weeds. But why does he go to that labor? It's to um, have plenty and to live free from care, to have a good crop, to fill his barns. <coughs> a merchant will risk storms at sea in order to ship their cargo. Why do they do it? It's a path to wealth. These are means to an end. The scopus is a means to a telos. Well, then he says that the scopus of an ascetic is apatheia. The short-term goal of the ascetic is purity of heart. Oh, wait a minute then. All these sayings of the fathers that we're reading are just telling us about the first step, the short-term goal, and then the long-term goal is still ahead. And what is it? The kingdom of heaven. Let's look at their um, conversation. When I was in the desert of Skeet, where are the most excellent monastic fathers and all perfection flourishes, in company with the Holy Father Germanus, who had since the earliest days and commencement of our blah, 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 blah. They make a long sentence. Hmm? This is a style. You can uh, find uh, the conferences online and read that yourself. I've got some uh, text um, picked out. In anxiety, we implored him to give us a discourse for our edification, not without tears, for we knew full well of his determination never to consent to open the gate of perfection. If uh, 
the monk is trying to avoid vainglory, what should he do when somebody comes and says, oh, Father, please teach us a word? So uh, he, he won't be doing it readily, uh, but we could ask um, tears. He doesn't want to lay himself open to the charge of bragging or the sin of betraying his trust. But at last, being overcome by our prayers, they persuade him. He starts. Chapter 2. All the arts and sciences have some goal or mark and end or aim of their own on which the diligent pursuer of each art has his eye. And you pursue it, as you pursue it, you endure all sorts of toils and dangers and losses, cheerfully and with equanimity. Farmer, first example. He doesn't shun the scorching heat of the sun or the frost and the cold. He uh, plows the earth unweariedly, subjects the clods of his field to his plowshare. First you dig it up, then you have to break it up further uh, out with a hoe. And that is done with his goal before him all the time. What? It's to break it up like small fine sand, to clear it of all briars, free it from weeds. But that's done to attain his ultimate end. Let's try another example. Those who are engaged in mercantile pursuits, the merchants, they have no dread of the uncertainties and chances of the ocean. While they'll set their goods on the ship, sail through the ocean and in danger of storms in order to make their gain. Uh, let's take an example of uh, somebody in military life, a soldier. They look forward to the final end of honors and power, but they take no notice of danger and destruction. They're not crushed by losses and wars while they're trying to attain this uh, role of honor. Well, our profession too, our profession these are professed monks. They've taken a vow. <clears throat> I visited uh, a long time ago when I was first thinking about this, the uh, Monastery of the Transfiguration, Mount Tabor Monastery in uh, California. It's a uh, Byzantine Catholic monastery. And uh, then still there was Abba Boniface Lux, and uh, he granted me an interview. I asked for a word uh, and the um, Abba, uh, in the course of our conversation, said uh, that he was proud of his uh, men. They pray well. And then a twinkle in his eye, he said, they're professionals. He was making a joke, they're professed. This is their profession. This is their vocation. This is their job. Uh, professional prayers, professional ascetics. Well, our profession too has its own goal and end. We undertake all sorts of toils, not without weariness, but actually with delight, on account of which the want of food and fasting is no trial, the weariness of our vigils become a delight, constant meditation and reading of scripture doesn't pall upon us, incessant toil, self-denial, privation of all things, this vast desert has no terrors for us. How is that possible? Well, the same way that the farmer works and the merchant puts his uh, goods on the ship and the uh, soldier puts up with uh, basic training. Of course, you go through these things in order to gain the greater end. Clear the field to have plenty. 
Risk storms to obtain wealth. Suffer training to obtain honor. And do the asceticism to attain purity of heart in order to advance to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Scopus is purity of heart without which it is impossible for anyone to reach the telos. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Scopus and Telos of the ascetical life is uh, contained in that beatitude. Doubtless, for this it was a you yourself despised love of kinsfolk, and you scorned your fatherland, and you went through all this desert in order to come here and ask me that question. So, he said, tell me, turn the question around, you now, John Cassian, tell me what's the goal and the end that incited you to endure all these things so cheerfully. I said, we, we did so for the kingdom of heaven. Well, nice job, but you haven't gotten the point yet. Chapter 4, let me go back to it again. When you said that you've made this journey, you've come to the desert to interview monks uh, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, you jumped over the middle step and went straight to the telos, you should know what our immediate goal, our immediate mark is. And we said, ah, we don't get it. We professed our ignorance. So he proceeded and repeats the um, uh, arguments one more time. As we stood gaping at this remark, the old man proceeded, what remark? You have to know what the immediate goal is before you can understand what the ultimate goal is. Sorry, a little uh, side story has come into my mind. Uh, one of my influential teachers, a mentor really for me was uh, named Paul Holmer. And he used to do uh, this lecture. Um, I think we'll call it his why lecture. He'd say, uh, why are you in this class? And uh, we would suck up initially and say, well, it's uh, to uh, attain wisdom. Well, that's what John Cassian has just done. Uh, why are you interested in asceticism? Oh, to gain the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, well, uh, let's get real. Let's start with the details. Why are you in this class? Uh, in order to um, pass the course. Why do you want to pass the course uh, so we can uh, graduate? And why do you want to graduate uh, so we can get a job um, teaching philosophy or theology? Yeah, good luck with that. But anyway, yes, that's what we were doing, get a job. And why do you want to get this job uh, so we can make money? And why do you want to make money? And here's where uh, Homer drove us, herded the cats towards this answer. Why do you want to make money? Well, I guess it's uh, so we can be happy. And then he asked, and why do you want to be happy? And his point was, you can't really go behind that question. He said that all of these were means to this end, but you can't go behind the end. Happiness is uh, self-evident, self-justifying. Uh, you can't, ex it's an explanation. You, you don't uh, go beyond it to explain it. Well, all of these um, ascetical 
disciplines are ways to, ways to, ways to, uh, to what? The end of our profession is the kingdom of God, yes. But all of these um, immediate aims is purity of heart. What is the ascetic discipline seeking? Purity of heart. Oh yes, that will lead you to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Purity of heart, I uh, clipped this off the other day, uh, comes to mean um, to will one thing, to not have your heart divided, to not be scattered and split. And I find that definition to will one thing in Augustine, in the early church. I find it in the writings of Petrarch in the medieval period and uh, more recently uh, Kierkegaard says the same thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Ascesis is attaining a purity of heart to desire what? The kingdom of God. Uh, can't we just desire the kingdom of God right at the beginning as we start off? Mm, uh, apparently not. Apparently the heart is um, so scattered and it's distracted. In order to uh, desire the kingdom of heaven, you would have to purify your desire. In order to see the telos, you would have to remove the cataract of sin from the eye. Uh, we think we would like heaven, don't we? Heaven, boy, who wouldn't like heaven? There, uh, uh, I'll get to uh, eat all my favorite foods and to sleep until noon. Oh, wait a minute, those are things that I like to do now. I wonder if they'll be uh, offered to me, available in heaven. Yeah. C.S. Lewis makes the quip, uh, for most of us in our present condition, heaven would be an acquired taste. Heaven isn't just meeting our natural desires. Heaven is feeding us supernatural food and we would have to have our uh, appetites, our palates cleansed in order to uh, even want it. Does that give us a new picture of asceticism now? Ascesis is a preparation of each individual soul for beatitude. You won't find heaven heavenly unless you are prepared for it, and that's what asceticism is up to. I'm trying to flip our lids. We think of asceticism as uh, beating ourselves up, uh, being uh, hard on ourselves, some kind of masochism. Here's the shortest joke I know. It's a conversation between a, a masochist and a sadist. Hurt me. No. Doc, it hurts when I do this. God replies, don't do that. I didn't create you to do things like that. Why are you hurting yourself? Asceticism is a healing. It's a preparation for beatitude. Let's take those soldiers as an example again. Whenever they want to show their skill before the king, they try to shoot arrows or darts into certain small targets. For they know they cannot in any other way than by the line of their aim secure the end and the prize that they hope for. 
if they shoot the missiles idly into space, they can't see where they've gone wrong or how to improve their aim. Well, your vocation, everybody's vocation, desert ascetic, city ascetic, is the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, holiness. But if we have an unsteady look, we're not going to uh, reach that target. So we have to train for our training. The immediate goal is purity of heart, which is not unfairly termed sanctification. As if he had said, in other words, having your immediate goal in purity of life, but the end a goal is life eternal. Philippians 3.13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward towards those which are before, I press toward the mark, the prize of high calling of the Lord. In Greek, kata skopon, scopus, scopus and telos. And with this scopus, with this aim, with this pressing towards the mark, I forget the things that are behind, the faults of an early life, and I strive to reach the end, the telos, as a heavenly prize. Whatever can help to guide us towards this object, we must follow with all our might. Whatever hinders us from it, we must shun as a dangerous and hurtful thing. There's your rule. Here's a ascetical rule for um, the practice of ascesis. If it leads you towards God, do more of it. If it distracts you from God, do less of it. For this we do and endure all things, that we may we make light of our kinsfolk, our country, our honor, our riches, the delights of the world, all kinds of pleasures, so that we may retain a lasting purity of heart, which will direct our actions and thoughts towards the attainment of it. I'm going to put one more connection in this. I think you know that uh, this episode between uh, Mary and Martha has been taken by the tradition as depicting a uh, difference between a contemplative life and the active life. But it sometimes gets uh, smeared, confused in its uh, presentation, and I'd like to uh, turn to Augustine to sort it. You remember here the uh, text, here it is. Um, she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying, but Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came and asked, asked what? How many homilies have you heard on this in which the uh, point is made that Martha is uh, a stinker? She does something wrong. Martha comes and complains, Oh Lord, don't you care my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Here I am in the kitchen sweating over a hot stove and Sister Mary is just sitting there. Why don't you tell her to come and help me? Because I'm helpful. And she's idle. She's just a, a contemplative. That's the way it's presented, isn't it? Listen to the Lord's answer. You're worried and distracted by many things, but they're need of only one thing. 
and Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Here's Augustine's uh, homily on it. I, I say again, I don't know if I've ever heard this take on that story in the, the homilies I hear. They've always used Martha as a cudgel to complain about people who are um, distracted and grumbling and mumblers. The Lord replied to Martha when she complained her sister did not help her. Martha has chosen the best part, which shall not be taken away. I'm underscoring it again because that's the point. He did not say that Martha was acting a bad part. In Augustine's opinion, Jesus did not say that Martha that uh, Martha was doing something wrong in the kitchen. He said that the best part will not be taken away, for the part which is occupied in ministering to a need shall be taken away when the need itself has passed away. Martha has done the right thing. It's a law of charity and hospitality that when guests come to the house, you minister to them, you feed them, you prepare. Jesus is not condemning Martha. He is comparing ministry to a need that will end to doing something that will never end. Here's Cassian's take on it. This should be our effort, purpose of heart, constantly aspire after that the soul may ever cleave to God and to heavenly things. Whatever is alien to this should be given second place. We have an excellent illustration of this in Martha and Mary. For when Martha was performing a service that was certainly a sacred one, she's doing the right thing. We're not saying um, it's not a matter of uh, good and bad acts. Martha's not doing a bad thing. She's not even doing it in a bad way. The service that Martha does is a sacred one. Since why? What was the service? She's ministering to the Lord and his disciples. Mary is intent only on spiritual instruction, and Mary is shown to, by the Lord to have chosen the better part, and why is it better? Because it won't be taken away from her. When Martha was toiling with pious care, not selfish care, it's not grumbling care, it's not annoyed care, she's doing her work well and piously. She was cumbered with her service, seeing that of herself alone she's insufficient for such service and asks for the help. Certainly it was to no unworthy work. It was a praiseworthy service that Martha summoned Mary. And yet what does she hear from the Lord? You see then that the Lord makes the chief good consist in meditation. Why? Because this contemplation will not end. It is a taste of eternity. All other virtues would be put in the second place, even though we admit that they are necessary and useful and excellent because they're performed for the sake of this one thing. When he says that Mary chose the good part, although he says nothing of Martha and certainly does not appear to blame her, yet in praising the one he implies that the other is inferior. And when he says that which shall not be taken away, he shows the other that her portion can be taken away. What? Martha's portion of good, the good she's doing, can be taken away? Yes, 
because a bodily ministry cannot last forever. But this desire, Mary's desire, to sit at the feet of the Lord and to listen, that will never be taken away. This is my translation of it. I take Abba Moses to be telling Cassian that Martha's work is more, sorry, Mary, Mary's work is more excellent, not because Martha's reward is not eternal, but because Martha's work is not eternal. I think Martha can attain by works of charity, the uh, kingdom of heaven, if she's also uh, doing the ascetical uh, discipline of her vices. It's not that Martha's reward is not eternal, but Martha's work is not eternal. Her work will end, and that's what leads the tradition to say that Mary's work, sitting at the feet of Jesus, is the better part, because it won't end, it won't end. So my scheme here is to uh, blow up the big screen when I'm transitioning from one uh, point to another. It uh, gives you a little bit of uh, interest. The asceticism is an immediate goal, a scopus, a training, a discipline. Uh, why do you go to the gym and do sit-ups to be more healthy? or vaingloriously to uh, get a uh, six-pack and impress the ladies out on the beach. But whatever your goal is, uh, the telos is, uh, this is why you do this labor. Uh, why do you uh, discipline yourself? Ascesis is a discipline. Why do you uh, uh, get up every morning, go to work, uh, do what you need to do? It's all towards a further end. And the end we're talking about is not so much earning the kingdom of God. I think that Augustine and Pelagius has sorted that out a long time ago. It's preparing for the kingdom of God. It's preparing ourselves for the kingdom of God. It's changing our appetites so that we would desire what God wants to give. We uh, engage in a debate sometimes in, uh, with the undergrads just to try to make them uh, realize they can all uh, be thinking theological thoughts. Is there such a thing as a um, bad prayer? And uh, first they say uh, no, because any heartfelt emotional prayer, that's got to be good. And then I suggest to them, uh, how about this prayer? Uh, Dear God, bless me into hell with everyone else. When mm, they think that may not be a particularly good prayer. No, maybe prayer isn't to get God to do what we want him to do. Maybe prayer is to train us to want what God wants to give. That's the flip that I'm trying to create about asceticism. So now if we looked at the vices and virtues from that lens, out of that perspective, it might um, make us more uh, agreeable towards asceticism. I'm doing an apologetic for asceticism, which is pretty strange since I'm not a very good ascetic. The tradition thought a lot about these vices and virtues, and these are Western medieval manuscript um, pictures. Uh, it seems that I just froze. Let's try another one. Here we go. Um, these, this is um, a tree of 
virtues and this was a tree of vices and they like to think about the relationship of one to another. This vice would cause these other vices. In uh, John Climacus' Ladder of Divine Ascent, back uh, to the east side, he talks about um, mothers and daughters. The daughters of this vice are the following, etc. Uh, that's pretty hard to read, isn't it? Uh, let's go here and uh, erase this from the last time. Here's uh, the vice of lust, luxuria, and from it comes libido, fornication, fornicatio, lasciviousness, voluptuous, avarice, perjury, violence, fallacies, uh, I thought I'd clean these out, but I missed them. Let's uh, take this one just as a close, because this isn't what I, where I want to stand, but uh, vainglory, right? Loquaciousness, blah, blah, blah. That's about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Uh, never letting it go, dog with a bone arrogance, disobedience, hypocrisy. The virtues, charity, fortitude, fiducia, constantia, tolerance, fortitude coming out of tolerance. See how they connect them together? There's a great book by Joseph Pieper on the uh, four cardinal virtues, and he uh, points out there that the first mentioned is prudence because you have to know how they hang together if you're going to uh, do them. You have to know the right measure in which to do them if it's going to work. Justice. Here's a uh, uh, big page, an early 13th century illuminated manuscript from either France or Germany, five concentric circles depict from outer to inner the seven vices, seven petitions, seven gifts, seven virtues, seven beatitudes. Pride, the queen of the vices, sits above her throne in the outer circle. I suppose if I taught a uh, course on the Mor morality, moral law, moral theology, uh, and a student handed this in as their uh, final exam, I'd have to give them an A minus. Well, probably an A. Pretty good trick. I used to joke uh, to that effect once, and uh, one day in my uh, C.S. Lewis course on the final exam, somebody uh, uh, that was covering material from Narnia on the final exam. Somebody answered several of their questions with just drawings. Uh, never did a uh, complete write-out, but it was so clever that I gave them credit for it. Well, here's what I'd like to do with it. Chesterton said, the saint is a medicine because he's an antidote. Indeed, that's why the saint is often a martyr. He's mistaken for a poison because he's an antidote.
He will generally be found restoring the world to sanity by exaggerating whatever the world neglects, which is not always the same element in every age. And that's why every generation seeks its saint by instinct. He's not what the people want, but what the people need. It's very interesting, uh, as always, whatever Chesterton says, an interesting angle that just starts you thinking. What saints have certain generations appreciated? The saint they appreciate may be an antidote to the poison that generation has ingested. I'm thinking of Mother Teresa, Calcutta, generosity in a world that is uh, me first, myself second, if there's anything left, I'll take it. We recognize that uh, she presents a different picture. I think St. Uh, John Paul II, an establishment of uh, truth in charity. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm taking this notion that um, here's the poison and here's the antidote. I'm going to jump back and forth. I'm just allowing myself 25 minutes here to wrap this up with some definitions of um, these poisons, these vices. Most of them come from uh, Cassian and Climacus, but I'm taking some also from the West to uh, indicate that the um, train of thought runs throughout. I was uh, told about this book by a friend of mine who did medieval studies, uh, otherwise I never would have found it. It's a uh, Franciscan preacher's manual from the 15th century. Friar Sintram, studying in Oxford, copied four treatises to carry back to Germany, and the fourth treatise, Fasciculus Morum, compiled by an unknown Franciscan. And under the seven capital sins and their opposing virtues, he organized preaching material. And here's the shorthand summary of um, the vices definition, definition of vices in the Fasciculus Morum. Uh, I like it for the reason I like much of this ascetical material. It's so precise, it's so short, uh, to the point. Pride is love of one's own superiority. Ouch. I get it. It's not necessarily being superior. You can have a hierarchical society, superiors and inferiors, but the love of one's own superiority, which leads you to do what? What are the daughters of this um, pride? What's the fruit hanging on the tree from this? Wrath, an unbridled desire always to get vengeance and never to have pity. Luxuria, lechery, lust, failure to observe moderation in a soul that perversely loves bodily pleasures. Gluttony, an intemperate desire to eat. Not the desire to eat. That's fine. That's a faculty. That's a good. We have to have it to live. It's the intemperate desire to eat. Sloth, boredom with respect to the good. Mm, that penetrates too. There are some people, and all of us at some time have been in a situation where if not wickedness, at least naughtiness, attracts us more than uprightness and righteousness. 
boredom with respect to the good. Aren't we kind of afraid that we'll be uh, bored in heaven after a bazillion years of playing our harp and floating around between Jupiter and Mars? I think that's totally wrong. There will be more happiness in heaven because the beatitude of each individual will be, will be for that individual. Hell will get boring because there are only so many ways you can sin. Avarice. To desire something... Oh, is it not okay to desire something? Sure it is. More than befits its value and the love that the object deserves. And envy. Oh, this one took me by surprise. Uh, we use the word envy like um, covetousness and sometimes like jealous. Um, I envy uh, his success. I wish I had that success. Envy's uh, more dastardly than that. Envy is sadness about someone else's happiness and glee about someone else's ruin and adversity. If your neighbor's promotion makes you grumble, makes you mad, sad about good fortune, angry about, uh, sad about good fortune, um, happy about bad fortune, that's envy. That's why envy is uh, treated so harshly. Well, let's take a couple of uh, examples here. We'll just do um, as many as I can uh, get through. Start with this idea of pride. Here's the fasciculus morum definition. This sin has four branches. The first occurs when someone who has some good believes he has it from himself. I deserve it. I've earned it. It's not a gift from God. Second branch occurs when he believes the good he has from God is given to him for his own merits. Third, when he brags of having what he does not have. And the fourth occurs when he despises other people and wants to appear unique and to have what he does not have. We must consider pride of mouth, speaking too much, speaking idly, and speaking ill. Consider pride of deed, clothes, knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> That, that one doesn't count if you've been in the academy for uh, 50 years of your life. Uh, surely you couldn't suffer pride there, could you? Mm. Beauty, power, rank, noble lineage. He throws in a line, Should a thief who is being led to the gallows have reason to be proud of the rope with which he is to be hanged? Members of pride, hypocrisy, disobedience, clutching a green glory, vain glory and boasting. Here's John Climacus. I told you I'm just picking some out of the tradition that I'm aware of and that I particularly like. So here's uh, 15th century West and now John Climacus is 6th century East. I fast and I turn vainglorious. I stopped fasting so I'll draw no attention to myself and I became vainglorious over my prudence. Whether I dress well or badly, I'm vainglorious in either case. Vainglory anticipates the arrival of guests from the outdoor, outside world. It prompts the more frivolous monk to rush out to meet him, fall at their feet, give the appearance of humility, when in fact he's full of pride. Vainglory and pride have an um, element of hypocrisy to them. This is typical of John Climacus. He uh, makes 
staccato sentences. Pride is denial of God, an invention of the devil, contempt for man, the mother of condemnation, the offspring of praise, a sign of barrenness, flight from God's help, harbinger of madness, author of downfall, cause of diabolical possession, the source of anger, the gateway of hypocrisy, source of hard-heartedness, custodian of sin, foe of God, root of blasphemy. He writes like that frequently. He'll um, put little pellets in a shotgun and uh, put the paragraph out like that. A proud monk argues bitterly. Cassian talks about vainglory. The vice of self-esteem is difficult to fight because it has many forms and it appears in all our activities, in our speaking and what we say, in our silences, in vigils and fasts, in prayer and reading stillness. You can become vainglorious about anything. How is such pride combated with humility? Macarius was once returning to his cell from the marsh carrying palm leaves, and the devil met him, by the way, with a sickle, and wanted to run him through with it, but he could not. The devil said, Macarius, I suffer a lot of violence from you, for I cannot overcome you. Whatever you do, I do also. If you fast, I eat nothing. If you keep watch, I get no sleep. There's only one quality in which you surpass me. Macarius said, What is that? And the devil answered, your humility. That's why I cannot prevail against you. If you won't be humble for any other reason, do it because it really annoys Satan. A hermit asked, what is humility? And he said, "If it is if you forgive a brother who has wronged you before he is sorry. You want more on humility? Go to uh, the rule of Benedict and look at the uh, steps of humility, the different stages of humility. Let me do a little bit about avarice. Fasciculus morum. Immoderate desire, not only for money, but also for rank and knowledge. Innocent describes greed as naturally eager in grasping, slow in giving, shameless in denying. Praises what is given, puts down what he should give. John Climacus. The man who claims to possess both charity and money is self-deceived fool. I'm a pretty charitable person. Let me see your bank book. The pretext of almsgiving is the start of avarice. I just pretend to give alms, but really I want to keep it for myself. That's the start of avarice. How does it end? Detesting the poor. This is a line that I uh, grabbed from memory the other day, the other video. Poverty of a monk is resignation from care. Can I practice poverty the way the monk does? No, but the way the monk practices poverty, I could practice my version of it. I have many cares to resign from. It's life without anxiety and Travels light, far from soil, uh, sorrow, and faithful to the commandments. The poor monk is lord of the world. He's handed all his cares over to God. Avarice is the root of all evil because it causes hatred, theft, envy, separations, hostility, stormy blasts, remembrance of past wrongs. And here's John Cassius.
When this sickness finds our soul lukewarm and lacking in faith at the start of the ascetic path, then it conjures up to the monk's mind a picture of lengthy old age and bodily illness. Cassian is almost quoting Evagrius' description of uh, avarice word for word there. That's how he puts it. So how would we fight it? With poverty that allows for liberality and an expression of mercy. This is one of my favorite uh, Desert Father stories. The brothers said that Galatians had a parchment book worth 18 shillings. Can you believe this? It contained the whole Old and New Testaments. Quite a book before uh, Gutenberg's printing press. The book was put in the church so that any monk who wanted to could read it. But a traveling monk, uh-oh, you know that's a problem because monks shouldn't be traveling around, stay in your cell. A traveling monk came to visit the hermit, and when he saw the book, he coveted it, stole it, and took it away. The hermit knew who the thief was, but he did not give chase or try to catch him. The thief went to a city and looked for a buyer. He found a man who wanted it and began by asking, 16 shillings for it. Wait a minute. Uh, he said it's worth 18 shillings, and here he's asking 16 shillings. And the man who wished to beat him down said, oh, uh, let me show it to someone and get some advice so that I can know what the right price is. So the pawnbroker brings the book back to its owner. He took the book to Galatius to discover whether it was a good bargain and worth his high price. Galatius asked how much he was at, uh, the how much the seller was asking and he said uh, the 16 shillings and he said buy it that's a good bargain it's certainly worth that much the seller the pawn the the buyer the pawnbroker went back to the seller but instead of doing this he said i showed it to galatius and he told me it was too highly priced and not worth what you asked he's trying to bargain him down on the cost here and the thief now is uh, worried did he tell you anything else like did he tell you that i stole it and he answered, nothing. So then the thief has conversion stricken to the heart. He went back. He told the uh, pawnbroker, I don't want to sell it. And he went back to the hermit, did penance, told him to take the book back. He didn't want to take it back. The monk said, unless you take it back, I'll never have peace of mind. The hermit said, if you can't have peace of mind, unless you take it back, I'll do so. And the brother remained with the hermit until his death, and he made progress by learning from his patience, his poverty, his mercy. If you could overcome avarice, graspy, graspy hands, it would change the uh, engagements you had with people around the world. Uh, I said that was uh, one of my favorite stories. Uh, this is maybe my very favorite story. Not quite. I've got one more coming. Two hermits lived together for many years without a quarrel, and one said to the other, let's have a quarrel with each other, as other men do. And the other answered, I, I, don't, I don't know how a quarrel happens. And the verse said, well, look, I've been studying the matter, apparently. Uh, I take this brick, and I place it between us, and I say, that's mine. And you say, no, it's mine. And that's how you begin a quarrel. So they sit down to uh, try it out. He put a brick between them and one of them said, that's mine. The other said, no, it's mine. The other said, okay, if it's yours, take it. And they were unable to argue with each other.
I tell my used to tell my classes uh, would this apply for roommates think back to the last quarrel you had with your roommate what was it about would it apply to uh, friends would it apply to spouses would it apply to nations and wars Macarius, I have three good books, and I'm helped by reading them. Don't look at my uh, bookcase behind me as I read this one. I'm helped by reading them, but other monks also want to read them, and they're helped by them. What shall I do? What shall I do? Macarius said, reading books is good, but possessing nothing is more than anything. When he heard this, he went and sold the books and gave the money to the poor. A few more. Occasion of lechery come from sight. Bridle your sense of sight. Keep custody of your eyes. Conversation, even if they began with a good intention, can quickly turn from touching. Other vices you can confront and do battle with, but this one of touch you must flee and not let it come near. And kissing. Boy, that would pretty well um, kill Hollywood's movie scripts, wouldn't it? John Climacus, don't imagine you'll overwhelm the demon of fortification by entering in an argument with him. Nature is on his side. You were made for enjoying sexual intercourse. The devil is trying to uh, bend that, corrupt it. Nature is on his side. Don't argue with him. This is one you're going to have to flee. And the sin of fornication does not require the availability of another body. So as the scripture just uh, last Sunday, I tell you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her heart. Oh, there it is. There it is. Um, Cassian remarks on it. He seeks to correct not so much our inquisitive and unchaste eyes as the soul which has its seat within and makes bad use of the eyes. Could you become a person who makes good use of your eyes or might you make bad use? Good use of your eyes. Eschesis. Chastity is born of tranquility and silence and inner prayer. When Cyrus was asked about the temptation of lust, he said, if you are not tempted, you have no hope. If you're not tempted, it's because you are already sinning. The man who doesn't fight sin at this stage of temptation is sinning already in his body. And the man who is sinning in his flesh has no trouble from this temptation. This is uh, frequently uh, depicted in the sayings of the Desert Fathers. If you don't feel the wind trying to knock you over. It's because you're already laying supine flat on the ground. Or if you don't find the devil tempting you, it's because he's already got you in his net. Um, they 
the people who walk by saying, oh, no, no, I'm doing fine, uh, they uh, worry about that. Emma, Sarah, 13 years, attacked by the demon of lust, and she never prayed the battle should leave her. She only used to say, Lord, give me strength. Sometimes this um, vice can uh, only be overcome with the help of others. Two brothers went to town to sell what they had made, and in the town they separated, and one of them fell into fornication. And the other brother said, well, let's go back to our cell, brother, leave town, go back to the monastery. And the other said, I'm not coming, because when you left me, I was tempted and guilty of fornication. The other, wanting to help him, said, the darndest thing, I did too. The same thing happened to me. After I left you, I fell into fornication too. He didn't, you understand, right? You get it. Well, let's go together and do penance with all our might, and maybe God will pardon us sinners. And when they returned, they told the brothers what had happened, and they were told the penance to do. The one did penance not for himself, but for the other. Talk about a communion of saints. Already in the flesh, already in this life. As though he himself had sinned, and God, seeing his earnestness and in charity, revealed to the elders that he had forgiven the fornicator because of the charity of his brother. A cruel mother usually gives birth to a savage daughter. Wrath is the chief daughter of the wicked mother of pride. Its main character is to be quickly inflamed, and it can never be mitigated until it has spent itself by totally venting its irascibility. Wrathful people are worse than the devil, because the devil only remembers sin as long as they are being committed and forgets them after penance, and a wrathful person doesn't. He returns evil for evil in like measure, and he can't punish beyond what is deserved, but a wrathful person tries to. And he cannot punish one person for the sins of another, but a wrathful person tries to do that. John Climacus, anger is an indication of a concealed hatred, a grievance nursed. Nursed, remember these stages of temptation, dallying with the logismoi, uh, playing with it? Anger is the wish to harm someone who's provoked you. An angry person is a voluntary epileptic. Involuntary tendency breaks out in convulsions and falls down. It's an indication of presumptuousness. Boy, once you read these um, sayings, you kind of know why they're talking this way, what, the, what it's about. Angry people, because of their self-esteem, make a pitiable sight. This one needs red, so I took a second. Hmm. How is our spiritual life going? Is there any obstacle to the spirit being present in us? I come from many sources, and I have more than one father. My mother's are vainglory, avarice, greed, lust. My father is named conceit. 
My daughters have the names Remembrance of Wrongs, Hate, Hostility, and Self-Justification. Mom, Dad, Children, it's quite a family tree, isn't it? Here's one that I'd like you to um, come away with. This word, meek, is totally ruined in our vocabulary. I'm a meek person. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Doormat, spineless. Uh, he's too meek to say anything. No. Meekness is a mind consistent amid honor or dishonor. Meekness is a rock looking out over the sea of anger, and it breaks the waves that come crashing upon it and stays entirely unmoved. Meekness is the rock of Gibraltar. A meek person can be insulted and not lash out back again. A meek person can be uh, berated or humiliated and not uh, nurse it in his mind. He, he's consistent, whether in a state of honor or dishonor. Jesus was meek when he's being saluted, entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and when he's being uh, scoffed at and uh, mocked. That's what meekness is about. Uh, did I say that I had three favorite sayings? Uh, this is another one. A brother was restless in his community and often irritated. So he said, I'll go live somewhere by myself. I won't be able to talk or listen to anyone, and so I'll be at peace and my passionate anger will cease. Oh, that must be, we think, why they went into the desert. He went out and lived alone in a cave, but one day he filled his jug with water and put it on the ground, and suddenly it happened to fall over. He filled it again, and it again it fell. And this happened a third time, just like all fairy tales have three things. Goldilocks. Too hot, too cold, just right. This happened a third time, and when it did a third time, in a rage, he snatched up the jug and smashed it. And then, coming to his senses, he knew that the demon of anger had mocked him. I could be uh, calmer if these blasted people didn't make me so angry. It's not them. It's not those who are around you. That's why the demon of anger mocked him. Here I am by myself and he's beaten me. I'll return to the community. Wherever you live, you need effort and patience and above all God's help. So he went up and went back. Monks aren't allowed to go out in the eremitic hermit life until after they're well established in the uh, cenobitic communal life. This is a saying from Agathon. Even if a man were to raise the dead, he would not be acceptable to God if he were angry. Anger is worse. Why are the demons so afraid of you? Ever since I became a monk, I've been trying not to let anger rise as far as my mouth. Do I feel it? The logismoi? Yes. But don't let it get out. I can't stop from feeling this way. But you can't stop from gossiping. You can't stop from blowing up. You can't stop from uh, going on Instagram. 
Be at peace. Be silent. If I uh, prevail on your patience, I could just do these last ones. I liked um, Fasciculus Morum's definition of gluttony. Too soon, too rich, too eagerly, and food too well prepared. Reaching greedily, snatching the cup with trembling hands, holding a morsel or cake in one's hand, glaring at the wine this way and that, swallowing without chewing. They have two prayers. Before their belly is full, one goes, Oh, if only I had two stomachs. After, oh, belly, have mercy, have mercy. Make sure that your need uh, of food is as great as you make it out to be. Eat as reason teaches, not as your stomach desires. And this is a couple of great ones from John Climacus. Gluttony is hypocrisy of the stomach. I'm not sure I even know what that means. If I sign myself an essay question, explain this saying. I, I don't know if I could do it, but I sort of understand it, even though I can't say what I understand. Gluttony is hypocrisy of the stomach. First it moans about scarcity. Then, stuffed and crammed, it wails about its hunger. Control your belly before it controls you. Rule of St. Benedict. Nothing is so inconsistent with the life of any Christian. Uh, monks only? Hermits? Cenobitic monks? Any Christian has overindulgence. They've not given us a single rule for fasting. That has to be adapted to the time, to the person, to the state of life, to the occasion. But they have given us a goal to avoid overeating and the filling of our bellies. Stop eating while still hungry. Desert Fathers, better to eat, drink half a cup of wine than two cups of water. I'll do this one. What am I to do when I go to church? Love for the brothers often makes me stay to the meal afterwards. They would uh, stay in their uh, cells surrounding a central place. And then on uh, Saturday, Sunday, they would come together. And this one's complaining. I'm trying to uh, keep this fast, but when I'm with the community, then they uh, offer me food and out of uh, uh, obedience, I have to accept it. Oh boy, what should I do? Boy, that is burdensome. Abraham, his disciples, said to him, If in the meeting after the church on Saturday and Sunday, a brother drinks three cups of wine, is it a lot? If there was no Satan, it would not be much. I was trying to work this uh, business through, the liturgical asceticism. It started as an article, and I delivered it when I had a um, uh, visiting um, scholarship to University of Durham in the UK. And I went to uh, Father Andrew Louth's office 
to run my thesis by him because uh, I didn't know if I uh, had it straight or not. He gave me encouraging words. And when I uh, explained kind of this part about uh, not money, sex, or beer, avarice, lust, and gluttony, no thing is sinful that we can do anything uh, sinfully, use anything sinfully, wrongly. He smiled and said that his sister, his biological sister, is an abbess in a monastery. And uh, she, once a year on uh, Easter, would bring out uh, wine and meat and say, remember, sisters, there's nothing wrong with these. And they would feast on them, and then they would put them away for 364 days. You don't fast because there's something wrong with the thing. You fast in order to keep control of your appetites. If there were no Satan, it would not be much. And when you're full into it, disciples would say to him often, come, let us eat. Haven't we eaten already? Well, no, Abba. Oh, well, if we haven't eaten yet, then bring the food. But it's not on the forefront of his mind. It's not all he's thinking about constantly. Envy. He refers to them as backbiters taking pleasure in someone else's sin. He kills three souls with one breath. The one of whom he speaks, it ruins his reputation. The one who hears him because it causes him to think ill of his neighbor, and he surely damns his own soul. Envy, you should know, is a disease more difficult to cure than any other sin. Put these vices, these logismoi, on a scale. What's hardest? What's worst? Why is it so hard? Because there's almost like no antidote. By envy, Satan perished. By envy, he slew himself. And then the Lord whom he envied, and he poured deadly poison into himself before he poured it into Adam and Eve. The disease is so incurable that it's made worse by treatment, because when you point it out, you become uh, uh, riled. What will you do for a man who is more offended, the more kind and humble you are to him? He's not irritated by his own greed, which a bribe can heal, or his desire to injure, or love of revenge. He's irritated by another's happiness. So where could you find somebody who could break someone out of that trap of envy? Tough one. This sounds like it's uh, about fasting, but I picked the story to put in the envy because it uh, describes a kind of a pridefulness. Fasting is, uh, they received guests and they said, when you receive guests, why don't you fast in Palestine? They do. They're better monks over there than you are here. And he answered, fasting is always possible, but I can't keep you here forever. Fasting is useful and necessary, but we can choose to fast or not fast. God's law demands from us perfect love. So I receive Christ when I receive you. 
I must do all I can to show you love, and then when I say goodbye to you, I can take up my rule of fasting again. Sons of the bridegroom cannot fast while the bridegroom is with him, and when you arrive, the bridegroom arrived, Christ arrived. I'm, I'm, uh, well, I wasn't going to, but uh, look at, there's just this one left. We'll look at the uh, sloth business. To this devil, everything good is boring. It's to want to always be at ease, even to reign with God if possible, never be busy, at all times to lie idle. Torpor, laziness. I think lukewarmness could be part of it. Tedium, another word for it, a paralysis of the soul, slackness of the mind, neglect of religious exercises, hostility to vows taken, approval of worldly things, a voice claiming God has no mercy, laziness in the singing of psalms, weakness in prayer, stubborn urge for service, dedication to the work of the hands, indifference to the requirement of obedience. Click, 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 click. Look how tedium hits you when you're standing. If you sit down, it's suggested it would be a good thing if you lean back, ease it off, become uh, casual, slur your words, don't be attentive with your mind. The opposite of sloth would be alertness. And that alertness is a quenching of lust, deliverance from fantasies, a tearful eye, a heart made soft, thoughts restrained. Dejection, sloth, despondency, didn't allow Cain to repent after he had killed his brother, or Judas after he had betrayed his master. I pulled this one up from Unseen Warfare, another uh, book worth discussing. Don't sit with folded hands putting off the sewing of your wedding garment to the moment when it's time to go out in festive raiments to meet the coming bridegroom. Christ is Lord. Remind yourself every day that now is in our hands. Tomorrow is in the hands of God. Now you can do something. I don't think this has exactly only to do with um, sloth, but in a way it does, the uh, tedious, insensitive person. And it's a John Climacus um, classic. This is his kind of material. Fun fact, if you're ever on um, Theology Jeopardy, John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent is read every Lent in most certain Eastern Orthodox monasteries. They, a book is read during uh, meals, and John Climacus is read, so a monk in the monastery would hear it scores of time in his life. And it was the first book printed in the North American continent by uh, Spanish in California. I read this somewhere. I can't remember where I got these things. I hope I'm never asked to prove it. Anyway, John Climacus is a great book. It's one of my first uh, draws into um, asceticism. The insensitive person, the uh, slothful person, the person who's not really focused and paying attention, talks about healing a wound and doesn't stop making it worse, complains about what has happened and doesn't stop eating what's harmful, prays against something but carries on as before. His lips pray against it, but his body struggles for it. 
He talks profoundly about death, but acts as if he will never die. Reads about the judgment and begins to smile. Plenty to say about self-control and fights for a gourmet life. I was out of sequence there. Reads about vainglory and is vainglorious while he's reading. Rejects what he's learned about keeping a vigil and at once drops off to sleep. Showers blessings on obedience and he's the first to disobey. Talks about detachment and he shamelessly fights over some scrap in the monastery. Here's a good one. Blesses silence and can't stop talking about it. Teaches meekness and gets angry while teaching it. Denounces laughter and while lecturing on mourning, he's all smiles. Criticizes himself for being vainglorious and in the admission looks for glory. Looks with passion and talks about chastity. Glorifies almsgivers, despises the poor. This asceticism needs practice, practice, practice. Because when you start, you behave this way on that side of the line and fail on that side. Do I have one saying here? Oh, yes. How do you overcome sloth? I grabbed a, a Benedict prompt obedience. They said that Solanus had a disciple called Mark who possessed the virtue of obedience in large measure. He was a copyist of old manuscripts and the hermit loved him for his obedience, but he had seven other disciples and they were sad that he loved Mark more than them. So the nearby hermits heard this and they came to make a visit. They're going to do an intervention. So when they visited him, Silvanus took them with him out of his cell, began to knock on the door of each of the disciples saying, brother, come out. I have some work for you. But there was a delay in each one of them appearing. When he came to Mark's cell, he knocked and said, Mark. And as soon as Mark heard the voice of the hermit, he came out. Silvanus sent him on some errand just to get him out of the way. He looked to the other hermits. Where are the other brothers? They haven't even gotten here yet. He went into Mark's cell. Remember, he's a copyist. And he had just begun to make the letter O when he heard the hermit's voice. And he had not even finished the line of the O. And the visitor said, you're right, Abba. We also love the one whom you love, for God loves him too. Prompt obedience. May not even have to be a command, because uh, which of you have uh, an uh, abbot who calls you up and gives you commands? Could be an interior command of conscience. You know, I really should go and do such and such, visit so-and-so, bring my um, St. Vincent to Paul. Well, uh, after this TV show ends. Uh, well, after I finish this chapter. Uh, I should call, but um, I'll get around to it tomorrow. The first degree of humility is prompt obedience. That was a little too rapid, wasn't it? It's all right. There's lots of other videos up on the web and on census fidelium. People more studied in the uh, vices and virtues than I am. But this ascetical material was my first way into the vices and virtues because of the um, description and the uh, battle. 
coming up on Lent at the time of this recording. And so uh, there's an opportunity to practice again. Oh, how generous the church is. Every year she gives us a, a, a pause, just as I uh, hit pause on my recorder here to uh, get back and change the screen. Uh, 40 days, pause, a chance to um, retreat from the uh, grabbing that the world has upon us. And then look how uh, the church balances things. 40 days of Lent, 50 days of Easter. 40 days of fasting, 50 days of feasting. That's about right. That's about what we need. <laughs>